Welcome to the Evolution Exchange Podcast. I'm James Price, and I'm your host for today. I connect businesses with talented cyber professionals in the cybersecurity market. We bring together the best technical leaders to discuss industry passages, challenges, and ideas. I'm joined today by a fantastic panel to talk about AI and machine learning in application security, opportunities, and limitations. Before we get into the discussion, let's make some introductions. So Ken, would you like to introduce yourself first, please? Sure. Thanks for having me, James. Uh, my name is Ken Toller. I'm a director of application and blockchain security at Kadelsky Security. Very excited to be here. Um, my background is mostly in application and software security. So uh, as we enter this world of AI, very excited to have this discussion and, and meet these other guests and, and you. Thank you, Ken. Uh, Patricia? Yeah, um, thank you for having me here, James. I am Patricia. I work for Compass Group as um, Application Security Manager. I'm responsible for maintaining the security posture of our applications at Compass Group. Um, Compass Group provides food and um, hospitality services um, around the world. Um, we serve food at very different places like schools, hospitals, um, sports arenas, corporate offices, etc. And to give you an idea, we serve about 11 million meals per day. Uh, that's how big we are. And we operate with different brands. I, I live in Charlotte uh, with my family, my husband, um, my two children and an adorable dog. Oh, lovely. Uh, thank you, Fusha. And finally, Johnny. Yeah, Johnny Walters, create and, and manage basically all things application security at a senior retail. Um, based out of Columbus, Ohio, about northeast of there in Newark, uh, about 35 minutes outside of Columbus there, and uh, happy to be here. Thanks, James, for the invitation. Thank you, Johnny. So now we've had the introductions, let's move on to the topic. So you all have a question on AI machine learning and application security. So I'll work around the room asking each of you to pose your question and the reasons behind it, and then each of you have the opportunity to give your take on it. So let's start with Ken and your question first, please. Absolutely, thanks. Um, First on the block. <laughs> uh, so my my question to the group is um, is application security focused, obviously, and I and I really had uh, some time to think about this a little bit uh, just as I'm working with clients and uh, and seeing a lot of the excitement happen around AI, especially generative AI. And so the question is, in the realm of application security, as we enter this world of AI and machine learning models like ChatGPT and they become increasingly more prevalent, how do we balance the need for innovation with potential risks of blind trust in these tools and misuse, whether it's intentional or unintentional, particularly when it becomes or when it comes to stakeholders who may not fully understand the complexities of these technologies? And I think to simplify that, you know, how do we promote responsible usage of these tools without treating them like big boxes of magic code? All right. Thank you, Ken. Um, that's a great question. I'm sure many people are wondering about the same thing, right? Um, we have seen how rapidly these tools have emerged recently. Uh, they proved to be very efficient in a number of use cases, um, but I just feel that they are not there yet to replace the humans, right? The content generated by these tools are always not accurate and organizations should establish some best practices and guidelines to promote responsible usage of these tools, right? Um, so there are a few things uh, to consider when you decide to use these tools. First of all, there is a lot of enthusiasm in using these tools uh, because of the novelty aspect of it or it's because it's different and proved to be very efficient. But the fact is the enthusiasm is outpacing uh, the need for understanding these tools, right? Understanding how these generative AI tools work uh, bring, makes a lot of uh, impact on how uh, efficiently you can utilize these tools. There is uh, there's, there's 
these tools are as good as the data they are used to train these models, right? And uh, this uh, data could be uh, in inaccurate data. Data could be biased or uh, data could be, uh, you know, when you're trying to generate code, it could be inaccurate code or code with several security vulnerabilities, right? Um, and the, some of these tools also have a training cutoff date and may not have the most recent information. So it might not even be relevant to your use case. And it's important to appreciate these limitations and uh, make the best use of these tools for trying to understand how these tools work. And the second thing is, uh, you need to always fact check the the responses and compare uh, the responses with some credible sources. Um, these tools, like I said, don't always uh, guarantee accuracy. For example, I was trying to test this tool and try to get some information on my husband. Definitely not trying to spy on him, but wanted to compare how these tools work and wanted to test the accuracy of these tools. And it, to an extent, it was right, but some of the uh, information that it gave is, is not right. Right, and uh, <clears throat> um, for for generating code, uh, when you get the response for uh, code generation, you always need to verify the logic of this code and check for security vulnerabilities. And there was a study conducted by um, Stanford researchers, and uh, it, it was proved that um, this tool, like the people who use this tool for generating code, have ended up introducing more security vulnerabilities than the ones who did not use this tool. And on the top of it, they have a false um, confidence that this tool does not, um, I mean, the, the code that is generated do not have any security vulnerabilities and is perfect. And that's something to keep in mind. In addition, uh, these tools can also, um, you know, generate biased uh, responses because of the biased information that has been fed to these tools. Uh, for example, I was having a conversation with one of my colleagues and uh, he wanted to check how these tools work, you know, with respect to biased information. and. Basically, he gave a sentence to this tool uh, with a uh, with uh, masking one word, uh, basically blanking out one of the word, and the sentence was, um, uh, "Mr. X uh, spent most of his time in you know dash," and the response was uh, "jail" or uh, "prison" or "solid uh, solitude," uh, all these negative places. But when he replaced Mr. X with Mr. Miss Y. The response was like Japan, Italy, uh, New York, Los Angeles, all these beautiful, uh, you know, to be want to be to be places. So uh, there's definitely biased um, information out there. Uh, so be very uh, be very cautious about it, and also be cautious if you're trying to use generative AI to produce work that you need ownership on. Uh, output may not be unique because somebody else is also trying to get a response on the same uh, query, and uh, the the response or the the work that you've generated it could be disputed. Um, another thing to keep in mind is to improve your prompts uh, to get better results. Uh, the response that is provided depends on two things, right? The the prompt that you give and also the, the data that is fed into these uh, models for training. So it's you, you probably won't get that uh, in, the, in the very first run. You, in, you need to engineer your prompts a little bit. The more information you give uh, for these um, tools uh, and the, the better context you provide, the better your response will be. So it takes time. Um, the more and more you use, you use these tools, the better response you get. And if your company is subject to any compliance obligations, like um, you know, in the healthcare industry or financial industry, uh, it's it's always good to ensure that these tools also comply with these obligations, right? And review the the terms and legal documents for any generative AI tools to ensure that they are consistent with your own terms and uh, policies. Um, uh, also, be you know, establish some uh, governance over how your employees are using these tools, uh, because um, these tools can be used for both good and malicious purposes. Is. I mean, there are bad actors who are trying to create malware and trying to extract information about software and libraries 
used by other uh, big companies. And once they have, uh, once they know the information on the libraries used, for example, you know, Log4j has some vulnerabilities. And, uh, you know, once they know the vulnerabilities of this um, libraries, they can easily compromise the system. So familiarizing yourself with these AI tools is very, very important. Uh, these tools and technology is here to stay and you cannot be behind closed doors and ignore them. Uh, early adapters, you know, will gain some, uh, you know, uh, an urge over their competitors. So um, always be educated about what you're doing and uh, uh, try to, you know, be, be responsible about the usage of these AI tools. Yeah, a couple of things here. I think, you know, to how we can use these things and how we can bring them into our organizations the the people that are using these are going to be the ones that that move forward right and so there's been talk about hey is this going to be replaced jobs and we see things like ibm is looking to replace 7600 jobs with ai so i think in the corporate world when there's you know a, in a, a a way to use these tools safely and effectively they're going to try to do that in order to cut costs that being said for our stakeholders and those inside the businesses that want to use these tools right i think a good place to start is probably security awareness training. A lot of companies already have this anyway, and some it might they in these train or sorry in this these security awareness trainings they will talk about hey what what is sensitive data for our use case right how do we how do we look at sensitive data inside of our organization and so it's probably already listed there in some effect. But as these tools roll out, I think on LinkedIn it's like you'll see these posts. And says something to the effect of try these 15 new AI tools, right? How can anyone go through and check out all of these things and understand the limitations and understand, you know, the data and privacy implications of all of these things, right? So there is a lot of enthusiasm around these tools, but there's a lot of checks and balances that need to be had as well. And so maybe some bespoke training, some new policies, some kind of some, you know, organization-wide training that says, hey, this is what we want to do. We want to use these things. We don't want to be left behind, right? But at the same time, you should be aware of how you are using it and what the limitations are in your particular use cases, right? So, but that doesn't necessarily provide guardrails. You can give security awareness training and, and the people taking it will click through really fast and may not really understand or really gather exactly the message that was meant to be um, given to them, right? And so I think I think to some extent there probably is a, a, a vendor play here in the realm of data loss protection so that when your company can define that sensitive data, you know, a vendor can step in, allow you to define that in the tool and then provide those guardrails for, for your users so that you aren't actually giving away things unnecessarily or even on accident, right? Um, when it comes to, you know, some of the, the, you know, it being a magic box, so to speak, and how we can use these things, right? So say we do have the go ahead, we do have the, you know, some sort of semblance of, of guardrails in place, or we're going to try our best, right? It is generative AI, right? So it is not fact based, they're not pulling these facts out of anywhere. It's, it's limited to the data that 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 information can be generated from. And so in the realm of application security, when developers are going out there, uh, to the point, to the point made previously, the code being generated, is actually introducing vulnerabilities. And I've seen this myself, you know, I've prompted it and asked uh, ChatGPT in particular, hey, write me some code that does, you know, these six things giving, given these variables, right? And it would give me working code. And then the next prompt was, is this code secure? And it says, well, this code's a good place to start, but if we wanna actually make it secure, so it did give me the answer, right? You wanna do these four things. So it started with working code, but then the additional prompts of saying, hey, how can we make this code secure? Or what is your take on securing this code? Uh, you can get a little bit better of, of results in that case. Does it mean it's completely secure? I think so, um, but it's a step ahead of what it could have been to begin with, right? And so and my take on that is, you know, some 
protection is better than no protection, right? When you're asking and making these queries, right? Some effort is better than no effort. Um, but in the but in the extent of writing code, you know, um, developers like to go out there and visit sites like Stack Exchange or Stack Overflow uh, more specifically, and they can say, hey, here's what I'm trying to do. This is where I'm falling short. Can you guys give me some ideas as to how to make this better? And I think that when, you know, things like ChatGPT are going out there and scraping all this data, they don't really have any any indication of where the green check mark might be on that page, right? So developers can say, okay, well, this one's been upvoted so many times. This is probably the most correct answer or the most accurate answer, although there are other answers to be found. Uh, I don't think that these generative AI tools have that idea of what that indicator means or how to process that. And so it is just going to give you the most highest probability of code that can be found. Uh, so I think understanding the limitations of these things, but understanding how you can prompt to get the best results for your money or for your time is a good place to start. And if we can couple that with some sort of um, guardrails, starting with some security awareness training, uh, I think that's a good place to start. Yeah. Um, no, I I do have some comments. It was great um, hearing your responses. I think if if I had to summarize that, uh, it's I, I'm, I'm in agreement with both of you in that it really comes down to raising awareness and you've shared similar experiences around um, just the hallucinations that the the AI will go through or that these uh, these models will, will work through um, I think uh, one of the one of the stories I do do, do want to share uh, especially when you're talking about uh, prompt crafting or crafting the prompts and one of the things that in that awareness I want to highlight is you know I, I found it very important to understand at least at a base level, you know what you're asking about, especially when it's technical or tech or technology related topics, because um, I had an issue with uh, with Terraform and Sentinel and infrastructure as code, um, where I you know you can continue to ask it or or sort of iterate on the prompts, but I got to a point where it became very circular as well, where it would hallucinate so much that it would just generate things and sort of come back to the same answer that was originally wrong, and um, if you don't know like. Terraform or infrastructure as code, or if you don't understand the baseline technology that you're working with, you may not even get to that point or understand, you know, what you're working with. And so I think that when it comes to security awareness, not only security awareness of this tool and technology, but of the underlying things that you're asking about, you know, use it as a as a as a friend that might lie once in a while, you know, or you know that you have to fact check a little bit uh, in in terms of of working with this. Um, but yeah, I, I think I 100% agree. Um, uh, on all the things, especially on the on sort of the bias element, um, and and just uh, being aware of what you're working with and how you're working with it. Uh, you two, any more final comments before we move on to the next question? I have uh, just one comment. Um, you know, these tools uh, are too generic. I mean, if you're in a creative field, uh, I think it's important to have that personal element included. Uh, you can't expect ChatGPT to. Uh, you know, make your answer too personalized. I mean, it all, it again depends on how your prompts are crafted. Um, but uh, I believe that creativity is not something uh, generative AI tools can do as of yet. Yeah. One of the indicators, I think, uh, in code that I've seen come across the desk in terms of code reviews that uh, showcases that it was generated by AI is this very vertical approach to development where um, there's a lot of, you know, inline conditionals sort of like top to bottom and things like that. 
um, especially early on before we've made this iteration into into like four and 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 folks are being exposed to other tools. Um, but it, it can be very limiting, you know, depending on who's using the tool. Absolutely. Thanks everyone for the input on that first question. We'll now move on to Profusia's question. So all yours, Profusia, please. All right. Thank you, James. My question is very similar to Ken's question, um, but a little bit specific to um, software development. So how how much can we rely on these tools for securely developing software? Right. We we know there is a lot of interest in uh, using these tools for development uh, because it improves your productivity. The entire team is happy, especially the business stakeholders, because now the project timelines are reduced by a lot. Um, we can use these tools in the entire um, you know phase of uh, software development lifecycle. Uh, we can use it from requirement gathering and analysis to um, design. You can uh, basically generate um, sequence and flow diagrams. You can develop uh, the code using code generation, testing for gen- generating test cases, deployment for generating the CI/CD pipelines, and even maintenance after uh, post deployment. Right? Given these advantages, what are the consequences of using these tools for software development and the action items we can take to avoid them. Yeah, you know, I'll repeat what I said a minute ago to some sense where, you know, some semblance of asking how to secure the code that you're writing is a lot better than than having not thinking about security at all or, you know, saving it for a later date, right? Um, and with that, you know, it's we have to think about the limitations. I think a lot of limitations come into this this conversation at this state because we're the key word there is we're asking, can we rely on it or how much can we rely on it? And so when we're talking about reliance, it is important to understand the limitations there such that some of the training data that we're using to generate our answers, you know, in the specific cases of ChatGPT is, is from 2021, right? So there may be, you know, new coding patterns that have come about uh, and, you know, we're talking secure and you know security here but it's also you know performance or how how good can your code be if we're if we're talking about um you know generating code from you know from these models so when we're talking about limitations you know there may be new libraries coming out there may be new coding paradigms that are coming out there may be new ways to secure some of these applications that have come after 2021 uh, that just aren't going to be represented in the data models that we're using to provide this code for us, right? And then we talk about, you know, Ken mentioned earlier hallucinations where you ask, um, you ask ChatGPT in this instance, hey, give me this thing, or hey, this isn't right, can you make it different? And it has that kind of circular answers. There's been times where it wasn't even necessarily circular, it was almost directly, the direct answer I got back was wrong again. So I said, hey, you got this thing wrong, right? This shouldn't be this way. And it's like, you know what, I'm very sorry about that. Let me try again. And then it gives you the exact same thing again, right? It's like, this is not helpful. And so it takes someone that has that subject matter expertise to really parse out some of that little new, that nuance uh, to get exactly what you want from the from the mindset of security, right? Um, and then again, we are just generating code, right? This isn't factual. We can't go out. It's not going out and looking for the best answer. You know, us as, as knowledge workers, we're constantly on Google saying, hey, Help me find this thing. Help me find the missing piece for this puzzle I'm trying to solve, right? And we're use, we're trying to use as many facts as we can or as many direct experiences as we can. And so one of the limitations that we have in our reliance on these types of tools is the fact that it is generating it from a black hole, seeming, you know, seemingly, right? And we don't necessarily... I don't know that at this stage in the game we can rely on it for to solve all of our problems, but I think that it would be prudent upon us to rely on it to increase our operational efficiencies. 
right? And the ability to make our work faster as a subject matter expertise, the ability to have this um, this model be able to give us back answers that we might not have thought of before. We've, we may ourselves be pigeonholed into the way that we've been coding or the way that we've been securing things the same way over the last five or six years. And so to get something different from what we expected allows us to not only learn from that model, but then take that learning, go out and fact check it, and then apply it in a much better fashion to be more performant, to be more secure, to be more compliant. At the end of the day, that's what we're looking for. You know, business teams and development teams are looking to roll out new features really, really fast and really, really rapidly, right? And security is something that's either a bolt-on or causes friction and all of these things. And so the mo if we can introduce that conversation and really not, not shift the security burden left, but start left in the developer IDEs and be generating secure code immediately, then I still think that we're, you know, increasing our efficiency inside of our operations when we do this, as long as we understand the limitations and as long as we have the subject matter expertise that can play with this and massage this data and then ultimately ship that to production. I think it's a win. In terms of reliance, I don't again, I don't think we can rely on it fully, but I think that we should be relying on it to increase our operational efficiencies. All right. So um man, I, I'm I'm really, really loving the conversation. Uh but I think um a couple of a couple of things that uh, th that uh, your words remind me of, of Johnny is um, uh, the a colleague of mine describes all of this uh, when he describes ChatGPT as always confident but often wrong, mm -hmm. and I I really like that uh, that sort of idea. And so in that sense, you know, I don't think that we can rely on these tools at least right now for security at all for all of the reasons that you've that you've been mentioning. Um, you know, I think, uh, I saw a post just recently as well, where uh, someone described that, you know, in Copilot, there's this idea that, um, you know, you, that the way that we're sort of putting guardrails around these tools is by asking the tool, you know? So it's like, you're sort of saying, uh, uh trust, I trust you to, to do what, what I need you to do. And, um, and I think that if we're, if that's where we're at, you know, I don't, I don't think reliance is in the picture, at least right now. Um, so how much can we rely on them or what can we rely on them for? I think is for, for, uh, asks in security that don't necessarily have this prescriptive end where you're like, I want secure code and I need secure code out of it. I think that when you're, I really like using it for, uh, like activities like threat modeling. So when you're, or getting people to think about threat modeling, um, when folks, you know, when you start a threat modeling workshop, a lot of times folks don't know where to start. And so it's it's nice for them to sort of have something to bounce ideas off of if they're not confident in bringing that to the table in the workshop or in the conversation or uh, scaffolding ideas or or sort of working out things that you have to think about yourself. So I think it's a really good thought provoker um, in that in that sense. And so when you talk about uh, starting left or trying to shift left some of these things, you know I think that that is that's a really good use for it. And I think the simple answer for me, is that um, reliance is just not there yet. You know, I think that we, it is a tool right now that that I think provides this false sense of confidence and a false sense of security to folks that are unaware, like we've, like we've just discussed, of, of what it's doing. And the more we raise awareness, the, it's not even the more that we can rely on it. It's, it's just how much better we are at recognizing what is incorrect or what is wrong. 
Uh, yeah, and maybe this deserves a, a podcast in and of itself, but do you have a quick example, Ken, of how you've kind of bestowed threat modeling <laughs> using this, this sort of tool, right? How you've used it to, because that generally is people like, oh, threat modeling, they talk about it, but no one really does it and they don't really know how to do it or how to get started or how much extra time it might take. But can you give a brief example as to to how you might use it in that use case? Absolutely. I think that it, it um, one of the ways that I like to, to think about it is, you know, when you're ideating on an application or you're talking to someone about an idea that they have, um, sometimes if they are like, you know, I want to threat model this or I want to think about security, you can, you can encourage um, them to use a tool like this to get ideas about what they should be thinking about. You know, if you're if they're describing the application and we we create you know our standard to do list, you might say something to the you know to a generative AI tool that is, um, you know, I'm creating a to do list application and my user interacts and I want to use a single sign on with Google and I have you know and you're sort of just human you know thought. Um, vomit, you know, into the, into the tool. Um, and then it can say, oh, you want to think about validation and you want to think about these configuration items in Google and this and that. And then it, and it kind of points you to where they need to go and review and research security issues and they can continue to ask more questions and contextualize what they're trying to do. Um, so not necessarily even just teaching them about threat modeling, but just giving them ideas of how to work on it. You know, while we were, while we were chatting, uh, just because I, I thought it'd be funny, I, I put in um, the, the question, like, how much can I rely on you for generating secure code? And, you know, it comes back with, well, you can't really rely on me. I can give you guidance, da, 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 da. And it says validate input and use secure APIs and libraries and apply the principle of least privilege. And it just kind of puts it into this nice little chat window for you to reference so that as you're developing an application or thinking about threats, you have it with you. And if you come up with something, you can throw that in there as well. So it, you're less likely to put in private data. Again, I don't encourage you to do this with anything that is like pasting production code or putting in diagrams or anything like that. But as a scaffold for an idea or in the ideation phase, I think it's really good. Yeah, I just wanted to add another point. I mean, these are great points, um, both Johnny and Ken. Um, there is a common misunderstanding that these tools are uh, here to replace human, right? Uh, I just wanted to iterate that generative AI exists to facilitate your work rather than to replace it. Um, we always need to have another set of eyes. There should be a human behind these responses to, you know, clear them up, make sure everything is tidied up, and then you, uh, you, you deploy this code to production. And um, another thing that organizations should be aware of is, is we can't completely ban these uh, tools. Right? We have to be supportive of our developers because this improves their effectiveness and productivity. And uh, but have a list of approved tools and say, uh, okay, these are the tools that are um, that fit uh, in our organization's um, uh, you know best practices. We need to use these tools, and you're okay. And uh, you know have some some sort of a governance on how these tools are being used. Um, and um, another thing is, um, you know, the the way these systems work is. If you are asking the systems to uh, print, let's say, numbers from one to hundred, they don't necessarily understand what a for loop is and how it goes from, you know, one to hundred. But they recognize this pattern. So, okay, somebody else has asked the same thing. There is this uh, this thing affiliated with how you print one to hundred, and they just spit out that code. Doesn't mean that they understand what that code is. So it's always always uh, better to uh, review this code and um, uh, deploy. Yeah, I just wanted to to comment on one thing quickly um, from your response, 
And that is uh, definitely embrace the tool, whether you think that you're like, whether you're behind it or not, even if you're vehemently against generative AI tools in the workplace, I think we've all seen that when you try to restrict development teams and engineering teams from anything, that the tendency is to be blindsided by shadow IT and unprepared to protect against those particular tools. Uh, so I think it's it's in our best interest to prepare for that because if we are if we're part of that narrative, then we can control it better. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention is you said count one to a hundred. It just reminded me of a story of another hallucination where somebody asked it to do this and it started pulling usernames out of Reddit with the numbers. And I thought that that was really interesting because that's the data set, right? Because you're going through and it's and uh, I think they traced it back to a group. Uh, on Reddit that was counting from like one to a, a million or something. And because the usernames are in the data set, it sort of started to include these random characters in the count. So on a simple task like that, especially in early versions, you know, you can see some of the problems that we've got. Thanks everyone for your input there on Profusia's question. Our final question on today's episode comes from Johnny. So Johnny, if you'd like to tell the listeners and the panelists your question, please. Yeah, a little bit of context. We, um, you know, Ken, you just mentioned how we should, you know, we shouldn't be banning this thing outright, right? But, you know, I've talked to a couple colleagues in the in the banking industry who have done exactly that, right? <laughs> and they said, we have to ban this, it's too dangerous for the, the kind of data that we're using right now. And so, you know, that got me to think, you know, how can big companies, not necessarily banking in particular, but just large organizations use generative AI tools like ChatGPT to gain a competitive advantage without compromising their data privacy? Uh, we think about you know Samsung, right? They were putting things in there, and then other users of ChatGPT were able to get some of the information that was put in there previously by Samsung developers, right? So again, you know, how can we use this to gain a competitive advantage without compromising that data? That's a great question, Johnny. So I, be I believe I will be um, repeating a little bit of what I said earlier. These systems uh, feed on the data that you provide to them and um, train their models and get better. Uh, it could be the conversations uh, in your, uh, you know, you're having with these tools uh, or your prompts. Um, so this data basically can be used to provide responses to other uh, other users with similar questions, right? Now this, this is public. Like you mentioned, this is exactly what happened in the case of Sam, Samsung. They were too eager to use um, this tool and uh, somehow ended up, um, you know, giving out their proprietary information. Uh, and this information, I mean, the data you give could also be stored somewhere on servers that probably don't have proper security guardrails and uh, can even be hacked or can result in data breaches. So uh, in order to avoid these risks, there are a few things um, you know organizations can do. Uh, first, define your corporate policies and ensure all the relevant employees are aware of these policies and uh, you know uh, establish the proper governance over it. And it's it's a good idea to develop your own AI tools now that you have a lot of foundation models. Um, but you know not all businesses have these cap capabilities to um, to develop their own AI tools. So when you decide to use um, tools from external vendors like OpenAI, there are you need to generate a, a checklist of questions to ask these tools and make sure these tools um, you know pass all the uh, the checklist of all these questions. So one is ask if you if they provide the ability to opt in or opt out of including their data, I mean, your data for their training purposes, right? And um, 
is your data stored temporarily and is deleted after n number of days? And uh, does this n number of days also align with your policies? Uh, and the temp the data that is stored temporarily is it encrypted? Is it stored uh, uh, stored securely on their servers with pro some proper security guardrails? Um, and is this is your data shared with um, uh, some of their partners? Right, even if it is shared, are they f uh, following proper data anonymization uh, procedures to avoid any you know leakage of data or information? Um, so asking these questions will help uh, you mitigate both legal and financial consequences. Yeah, no, um, a lot to think about. Um, I really like the questionnaire idea, and I think that that's going to become more and more relevant uh, as we go, as this this world expands. Um, I think from my perspective, you know, how can big companies use these tools? I don't know. I think that first is the one thing that you can do now, and it's going to be... Um, it's not your your the engineers won't like it and because it's not going to be as as good or as intuitive of a solution but to to like you said spin up your own versions or use other ai tools that provide the functionality that they want i think i don't think that um having this uncompromising i i don't think that we should be compromising uh, their their work in order to you know for the the security of the of the overall platform, but rather think about how to how to enable your, your teams. I think that right now a smart move is probably to cut off access because you don't know how to protect the data that you're you're looking to to work with. But I mean, as we've seen, they will find a way again to go and put this data into these tools if you don't provide them an outlet for. Uh, using this in, in that way. Either they're going to try to obfuscate the data themselves or they're going to try to do their best effort at security. But I also think that in addition to spinning up your own versions of of like these LLMs or, um, or other AI tools uh, is to start thinking about how to provide a path to certain use cases that allows them to work with these tools without compromising the data. So maybe there are workloads that do not fall under a particular data classification that you can expose um, and I think that we're going to see a very similar path in AI and generative AI that we saw in cloud. You know, when cloud first hit, I think every security professional was saying it's someone else's computer. We don't want anything to do with it. And we sort of hit this very, you know, um, uncompromising view where we were all just curmudgeons about cloud. And, you know, we we got we got caught behind. And then as it ramped up, a lot of security folks played catch up with with cloud environments. And I think that we're going to enter a similar space where more companies are going to host LLMs beyond OpenAI and some of the big players right now. And I think that you see that investment in larger companies like Microsoft and things of that nature. And so you will probably see a move to support for finance companies and for big tech and for larger organizations. It's just probably a year or two out, uh, maybe longer. But in the interim, I think that it's smart to think about how to how to enable these teams and i think the question that you have to ask is what are they trying to do and off the top of my head usually it is i want to accelerate my development i want to make i want to keep up with the rest of the world and i want to you know sort of innovate and work and if you don't provide them with these i think that you're going to see especially in today's world folks that are very uh, adamant about it you're going to see some attrition where the folks can, you know, sort of open up their their eyes to other other ways to work. So I think it's smart to at least think about what you can solve in terms of what problems they're having or what they're trying to accomplish uh, that you can expose either using, uh, you know, internal tools or not. Usually, 
large organizations. I know it's uh, fighting for budgets is a thing, but usually have larger budgets. And so I think that it'd be smart to put some of that budget into supporting your engineers and developers with these with these tools or custom versions of them. Yeah, something you said can uh, along the lines of developers will find a way, right? And you know we don't want them to you know have we don't have we don't want to have this attrition. We don't want to have our good developers leave, right? And it reminds me of a uh, you know. Jeff Goldblum from Jurassic Park, where he says, uh, you know, life finds a way, right? It's like developers will find a way, you know, as a reformed software developer myself, right? Like you always are looking for ways around things and how to get the job done and how to get a job, how to get your job done right now. And, and before the release cycle comes to a close, right? Um, or comes to an end. So, you know, I think the, you know, I alluded earlier where there may be, you know, some sort of vendor play where we can try to figure out some data loss prevention, right? I'm not sure when that's going to come or who's going to bring it. Um, but you had mentioned giving them a path forward or like finding that flow where they can go from from here to there while using these tools, while not, you know, um, while not re removing our data from the organization and being able to maintain some semblance of data privacy. And I think, you know, if we could, if we could start left, right, and in the developer IDE, give them some sort of box where you can not necessarily copy and paste code, but you can ask questions that generates that code, right? And you can generate that secure code. Uh, and then having a SaaS provider, some sort of company that does your static analysis, right? Where that they have the context of your entire code base. So instead of giving ChatGPT your, you know, all of your code or big pieces of your code, have it develop features for you, have them develop secure features for you as best as it can. And then when you, you know, put it into your Git repository, let the static analysis vendors do what they do best, which is contextualize that and then offer you feedback on the vulnerabilities that you may have put into that code base. And then even remediation as well. You know, I've used some static analysis tools where the remediation is is 10 years old from whatever company they purchased in this merger and acquisition. And they're still feeding you these remediation steps that may not be helpful or relevant. Right. And so if you could also, you know, have have generative AI at the starting point. Right. But also have it as it contextualizes your code, not feeding it your code, but feeding it the nature of the vulnerability and say, hey, how would you, you know, using if you're using JavaScript or Python or whatever, whatever you're using, how would you mitigate this vulnerability contextually without actually feeding it your proprietary code? And then you would have a lot better um, data set of answers that you could pull from and learn from. And that experience not only empowers developers to do what they do best and do what they do fast, but it also provides that that secure training to them as well, that secure development training in real time with the work that they're working on, not just theorizing about, oh, this could happen if you do something like this, or this could happen if you do something like this. It's like, no, you're doing this now, <laughs> right? And here's how we can contextualize it and offer you feedback based on the nature of the vulnerability without ever feeding it any of our proprietary code from the jump. This doesn't exist yet, but I'm really excited for whoever brings this to market or whoever, whatever developers are able to open source something like this, which brings its own set of problems. But nonetheless, um, that's my take on it. And I think, uh, Ken, you hit it spot on. We have to not get in their way. And if we can't get in their way, then how do we put something in their path that they can use to be more efficient? Uh, and I think that's the the secret sauce to this, this conversation. Yeah, no, I just want to say that, you know, I... James, I don't know if you know this, but it's not a successful podcast unless Jeff Goldblum gets mentioned on it. So uh, that happened, and um, and so now now you're now you're you've made it. Um, I think for from from my perspective, you mentioned something, Johnny, that 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 resonated with me, and something that I was thinking about. But um, 
forgot to forgot to mention. And when I was uh, at- attending a conference once, uh, someone mentioned the um, the importance of like licensing structures for for data privacy and the and the sort of like the legal aspect of when you are putting data into these tools, uh, what that means, and what control you have over the data once it hits the model. And so I think what you're talking about in terms of putting uh, tooling in the developer's IDE and training it with code that you have and sort of looking at paved paths and and sort of getting in front of engineers and developers to say, hey, this is needs this is you're making a mistake here or not. I think an important uh, part of that conversation is uh, understanding what licensing model you're acting in and how much and how much ownership you retain over the data that you're putting into it. Uh, if you're not hosting it yourself, obviously, and then um, sort of uh, on the back of what you said about uh, like how to how to contextualize that and figure out what what they want to do with code. What I want to see is um, you know something that I really really try to get folks to do, but it's hard to get people to write security tests and, you know, all the problems that we face in in sort of full scope uh, application security integration, um, like understanding what good remediation looks like for a specific organization and getting away from like these generic recommendations around mitigations and remediations. I think one of the really nice things that we might get out of this is, you know, if, if an organization has a specific way of solving a problem, that these tools can help to guide folks in the right on the right path and, and make things more consistent in code for larger organizations. So before we end the podcast today, I'd like to say a big thank you to all our guests for sharing their thoughts in today's conversation. Once again, our guests on today's panelists have been Ken, who's the Application and Blockchain Security Director at Kulasesi Security, Fuchsia, who's the Application Security Manager at Compass Group USA, and finally, Johnny, who's the Application Security Program Manager at Ascensia Realtail Group. And finally, if you're hiring for new technical roles or looking for a new role, feel free to get in touch with us here at Evolution. Or if you or anyone you know would like to be featured on a future podcast, feel free to drop me a message. I'm James Price, and you can find me on LinkedIn or email me at james.price at evolutionjobs.us or visit us at evolutionjobs.com. Thank you again to all our guests, and thank you for listening. We hope you can join us next time.